Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Today we will be reading from Daniel 6, verses 1 through 10. Again, that's Daniel 6, verses 1 through 10. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, should be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Um, just to follow up from our time of prayer, if you want some more resources on how to think about the election or as a Christian be praying for the election, uh, I put a post on our blog, on our website, uh, from some resources that our family of churches, the Great Commission Collective, uh, shared with us and pointed us to. So if you are interested in those, those are out there. Um, well, as we come to this story, uh, if in your Bibles you have headings. It says, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, this chapter has to be one of the more uh, famous or well-known stories. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you probably heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, you maybe have even seen something like this, uh, you know, a picture like this somewhere. You know, Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe you grew up in a church, maybe you didn't, but you saw a kid's Bible and you saw a picture like this. As I researched pictures online, I found pictures like this uh, or pictures ranging from uh, Daniel uh, sleeping on the lions as if they were pillows uh, to pictures of the lions kind of seated around Daniel as if they were his Sunday school class and he was teaching them. 
Okay, you can take the picture down. Um, this story is not depicted well in children's Bibles. Now, I am for children's Bibles. I think there's some great ones out there. We have a number of them in our house. But parents, I would encourage you to read this story from a text without a picture sometimes. Let God use their imagination that he's given them to see some amazing things in here because this story is so simple even a three-year-old child can understand it and understand some of the profound truths there. And there's so much detail and suspense in this story. Even a teenager or adult couldn't be found on the edge of their seat wondering what's going to happen and see some amazing things here. So I'd encourage you, as a side note, like read the text. Read it with your families. Certainly, we should be reading it on our own. But let's jump into the story. A little bit of background as we get into Daniel chapter 6. So remember, Daniel was taken from his homeland, but that happened probably about 70 years ago at, at the time that we come to chapter 6. So he'd probably been in this place for about 70 years, and now he was around 90-ish years old. So oftentimes, some of the depictions that we see are maybe like this young boy that, you know, doesn't know how to do his hair, right? No, Daniel was likely 90-ish years old at this point in time. And at the end of chapter 5, we remember he interpreted a dream and he was elevated to third in command. He was given some new clothes, given a gold chain. He's got this really great position. And that night, the king, King Belshazzar, was killed by Darius the Mede. Look at verse 31 of chapter 5. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Darius takes over the kingdom. So Daniel's now under his third king. I don't know if any of you have been in the unfortunate situation of working for a company when there's been a corporate takeover or when it's been bought out. If you've ever been in that kind of experience, you realize that it doesn't matter what position you hold in the company, what, what letters come after your name, vice president or whatever, when another company comes and takes over that company, you got to earn your keep even if you're allowed to stay. And so this has happened to Daniel once already. This is the second time. So though he was in the third place, he's found in a spot where a corporate takeover has happened. Probably lots of people have died. And now another ruthless kingdom is in place. But as we come to the story, we learn more about Daniel. So we're going to look at five observations about Daniel as we walk through this story. The first observation is Daniel had impeccable character. Look at verses one to three. It pleased Darius, so he's the, the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. They're like a governing official. Uh, set over uh, 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom because he knows he can't oversee everything. He's got to have people overseeing areas of the kingdom. And then it says, and over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account 
so that the king might suffer no loss. So, so the king also puts in place three individuals over the top of the 120 individuals that are going to manage things. He puts three managers in place, and one of those three managers is Daniel. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So there was, there was an excellent spirit in him. We can quickly run to, Daniel was a good guy, therefore I need to be a good guy. But this this phrase, an excellent spirit was in him, speaks more to the reality that God had done a work in Daniel. It speaks more about God than it does about Daniel. It speaks about God's activity in Daniel's life. Over years of time, God was with Daniel. Daniel had seen God move. Daniel had been met by God with two other kings. He had seen some crazy things, as we've learned early on, and seen God deliver. And so God was with Daniel. God was working in Daniel. He's been refining Daniel. And, and there was kind of this flavor about Daniel that should be even said about us as Christians, like we're said about us that we are the aroma of Christ to God, to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. There's absolutely something about him that is different. And he does everything exceptional. He trusts in his unchanging God. For us, Matthew 5 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So for us, it is the same. Remember, when we've talked about that passage, the light that's shining is not something that you lit in there. That's the light of Christ that's in you that's shining for the world to see. It's the work of God in you that's shining for the whole world to see. But Daniel's life was above reproach. Even his enemies couldn't find anything wrong with him. Look at verse 4. Then the high priests and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground or complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Thinking about, think about running against Daniel in a political race. Like, you want to throw out a commercial about all the bad things he did, you got nothing. Right? We see those, those commercials going on about this is the bad thing that this person has done, the bad thing that that person has done. You don't want to vote for them. They're horrible, terrible. These guys want to do that. That's what they want to do. And they got nothing because of Daniel's character. And there are very few people that can bear that kind of scrutiny. But may God do a work in us that we would display Christ to a dying world. Would they see the spirit of Christ in us? So Daniel had impeccable character. Number two, 
Daniel was opposed because of his faith. So back in verse 4, again, the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground against him with regard to the kingdom. So with regard to things that were going on in their particular kingdom. Did Daniel follow all the rules? Is there anything we can get him tripped up on? But they could find nothing against him because he was faithful. And then in verse 5, it says, these, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So unless we find something wrong, we, we can't find anything wrong with him, but we, we can find something. If we can trip him up because we know he's so faithful to his God, we can trip him up. Now, why are these guys so angry with Daniel? I mean, he's, he's a good guy. I mean, he's, he's following the law. He's the guy that the king is going to put him in the highest place. So Daniel's going to be over the three who are over the 120, who are over all the people. He's thought of that well by the king, and they can't find anything wrong with him. Why, why are they so angry with him? It's not your run-of-the-mill jealousy. Like when I was in pastor school, there was this guy in our class. His name was Jared. He, he couldn't ever do anything wrong. He was the guy that the professors would point to. Like he had the best sermons that were preached and he got the highest grades on the test. And whenever he would give an answer, the rest of us would feel like we didn't learn a single thing in the whole class because Jared just, they would flow out. And there were times you just wanted to be like, oh, he's going to screw up. And I can just, I can just, yes, he didn't get something right. And I knew something he didn't know. That's jealousy. And that was sin. That's run-of-the-mill jealousy. What's going on here is, is rooted in prejudice and, and bigotry. Because Daniel wasn't one of them. Let me try to give you a picture. I've, I've asked three guys to come up and help me uh, with this illustration. So can you, can you guys come on up uh, and, and stand up here uh, for me? Three very handsome men, of course, right? So this is, this is kind of the situation. So Sam here is going to uh, represent uh, the current kingdom, right? The Persians, right? Persians are here. Mike is going to represent the Babylonians, big bad Babylonians, right? And, and over here, we have Daniel. He's slightly older than the rest of them, right? So uh, we talked about this. We're the same age. So uh, uh, so that's what's going on here. So remember back in those days, if your kingdom crushed another kingdom, those people would typically become your slaves, your servants. So remember early on in the book, the Babylonians had come in. That's what, what happens at the beginning of the book. Babylonians come in and these guys over here are supposed to be the servants of these guys. And even in this kingdom, this guy, God used and raised up to positions of authority. So these guys would already be honked off at a guy like this having a position of authority. But then again, this kingdom then crushes this kingdom. So these guys already think these guys are the lowest of the low, and Daniel is below them. So these guys are hot to trot. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your help. 
Daniel's not one of them. How in the world does the king get off by thinking he's going to use a guy that was a servant of a kingdom that we crushed? They are livid. They are. Anger doesn't fully even grasp probably what they were, they were expressing. It was a spirit of envy. They hated the idea. They were conspiring against him. So they came up with an idea. Unless we find, in verse 5, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So then look at your Bibles as it goes on. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. So they gathered together. Let's come up with an idea. Let's conspire against this guy. Came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. So, of course, they are sucking up to the king. They're coming down. Oh, oh, king. You know, they're, they have figured out how they're going to pull this off. And so they want to make sure that Darius doesn't have a clue of what they're trying to do. We're going to appeal to Darius because we know he kind of thinks highly of himself like many uh, great rulers have been known to in the past. And we're going to tickle his ears. So they tickle his ears. Oh, Darius, King Darius, live forever. And the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Think about the picture that's going on here. Right there, this is like sucking up to the, the max. Oh, you're so awesome, king. We have all come together, all of us, all 120 of us and the three and some other people too. We, we all agree that you're awesome and everybody should pray to you and not anybody else. So now, O king, establish an injunction in verse 8 and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Do this. It's so important. We think you're so awesome. When you put the stamp of you know, approval on it, it can't be moved because you're awesome and we want to make sure everybody knows you're awesome. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. He signs it. Friends, just because we are Christians and because we've experienced many, many decades, centuries of blessing from the Lord does not mean that our lives are protected against unpleasantness or even worse, persecution. John 15, 20 says, remember the word that I said to you. This is what Jesus said. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Daniel was doing everything right. We don't really have the sense that Daniel was sinless, but he was clearly a definition of what above reproach looks like. 
and not just one individual, over a hundred governing officials conspired against him. Persecution comes in different forms and different ways. Yet it is to be expected by those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is to be expected. It may come by being mocked at school or isolated at school. It may come by trials or challenges at work. It may simply be that you are regarded in your neighborhood as strange, or maybe in your line of work, you're the odd one. But it may also be that we will experience intentional attack because we are Christians. This is not our home. Like Daniel was in a place that wasn't his home, this is not our home. And we should never think that we will be welcome here. Think about the chasm between Daniel and the Persians. He's doing everything right for God. But this is not his home. This is not our home. It's been said about John Wesley, one of the great preachers. His preaching included challenges to political and religious establishment. As a consequence, his preaching was responsible for 50 riots in his lifetime. Once, when a riot broke out, a man rose to strike him. But just as that man rose, another threw a stone at Wesley. The stone struck the man who was about to strike Wesley. And the great Methodist preacher called out and said, isn't the providence of God wonderful? Yes, the providence of God is wonderful. But that doesn't mean that the stone won't ever strike us. Because they struck Paul and they struck Stephen and others who faithfully lived with courage and it cost them everything. Daniel's faith was so strong that his enemies were certain he would rather worship God and die in a lion's den. How did they find a way? They created a law that the king would sign knowing that he would stand for God. They knew he would rather go to the den rather than give up his regular practice of daily prayer. Would those who are acquainted with us make the same statement? Would those, is our commitment to Christ and communion with him so obvious that our enemies would use it against us. Let it stir us, friends. Daniel was opposed because of his faith, because it was obvious, because Daniel had a pattern of prayer. That's number three. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Daniel knew 
that the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement. Again, the conspiracies happening, found Daniel making the petition and the plea before his God. They think, oh, we've got him. He, he did what we knew that he was going to do. Daniel knew what, what this edict meant. But this prayer is a bit different than the prayer he prayed earlier in the book. If you leave your finger there and you flip back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, you remember when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he wanted interpretation. Nobody would interpret the dream. So he's going to kill all the, all the wise men because he was just like, you can't interpret my dreams. So Daniel goes to his friends, and as we read in verse 17, and he says, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You know them by those names. And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So in that situation, Daniel goes to his friends and they're like, let's get on our faces before God and cry out that he will deliver us. He needs to do that. So he goes, he recruits people and they get on their face. In this situation, not that Daniel's not doing that because he understood what was going on, What Daniel was doing was part of his regular practice. Though he may have been crying out to God in that moment for deliverance, this wasn't a unique time for him. This wasn't a special thing that he set aside to go and do. This wasn't like, everything's going fine. Oh, it's not going fine. I better go pray now. No, he goes to the place that he had been going every day three times a day, because at the end of verse 10, it says, as he had done previously, because he was so regular at doing it that those on the outside said, this is how we can get him. There are a number of ways he could have responded in that moment. He could have blown it off because at the beginning of Daniel, we learned in verse 17 of chapter one, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Well, if he's got that kind of understanding, maybe he'll just go and pray. God's going to show him what's going to happen. Not a big deal. He could have freaked out. I don't know about you. If I'm about ready to be the, the, the number one dude in the kingdom underneath the king and all of a sudden everyone else is conspiring against me, my mind is going to start to run. What's, what's going to happen? What do I need to do? What, those are the temptations that I'm going to face. He could have defended himself. Again, he was going to be the second in command. He had relationship. He had influence. He could have called in a favor. He could have said, oh, king, um, you know, I know you just signed this thing, uh, but maybe you weren't aware that I'm going to be praying to my God, and do you still want me to lead in this place? I know you trust me and everything. He could have appealed on that, but he didn't. What did he do? He did what he always did. He followed his pattern of prayer. 
he went to his room, which he knew had windows. But because that's the place he went to pray, he went there. He didn't hide it. He didn't go, well, you know what? This time I'm not going to go to that spot because I have other spots to go and pray. Why did he go to the window to pray? Why did he have to look to Jerusalem? Because for someone like Daniel, he knew that the place where God dwelt with his people was in the temple. And he knew that he was hoping that one day that his people would be delivered because that's what the prophets had declared would happen. And he was looking to that day when they would be back in Jerusalem and they would be back in the presence of God. So it was important to him to look towards Jerusalem because it meant for him the presence of God. And I'm not going to go back in a corner and I'm not going to hide it because I want the presence of God. And so he goes to the window. It's almost like he knew what Paul would write. Years later in Philippians 4, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It was the place he longed to be. David Platt said, prayer will guard you against thinking that you can provide bread for yourself on your own apart from God. When we pray, it reminds us that we need our God He continues to go on and he says, I'm convinced when I look at my own life and look at the trends within Western Christianity that one of the reasons we are so flippant and casual with prayer is because we actually believe that we can do this thing on our own and we can sustain our own lives. We have bought into the materialism that's sold to us, which says that we don't need God. We just need our things. We believe that we can make it without God because we have all our things. But Jesus says that the core of our prayer is realizing that you have a Father in heaven who desires to give every good and perfect gift to you. You need him, not bread, water, air, or any of these things that you hunger and long for. Prayer brings us back to this realization. You need God, and he will provide those things for you. Only God sustains us. Remember, under the last king, Daniel was offered all kinds of stuff. And he said, keep it. Why? Because his God sustained him. And then he got that stuff. And then he's about ready to be in that position again. But he knew that no matter how big his salary, no matter how big his house, no matter how great his job, he knew only God can satisfy. Only God can satisfy He didn't need things, and he didn't need to defend himself. What he knew he needed was God. So how do we know if we will go to the Lord in prayer when the unspeakable happens? We'll we'll know that we're going to go there when we realize we have a daily need to go there. We have a daily need 
to go to the throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace for help in our time of need. We need to know we have that daily. If we need him for our daily bread, we will know we need him when the unthinkable happens. Even though you may not feel the need for daily bread because you have an abundance of it. The reality is it comes in abundance because there is a generous giver. So we need to go. We need to go to him in prayer. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you're like, you know, this, this thing, prayer, just seems to keep evading me. I don't really know how to do it. I'm struggling with Praying. Every time I go to pray, it's just boring. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm talking to the wall because when I open my eyes, all that's in front of me is the wall. And I kind of feel the same way that I did before. And this is just really hard for me to do. And I just can't seem to get into it. Do I really need to pray? Friends, I learned how to pray, not because I went by myself in a room, but I learned how to pray by praying with others. And so if you are struggling with your prayer life, you're struggling, I, I wanna know how to pray. I wanna encourage you to come to the Sunday morning prayer meeting at 8.30 before church to pray. Because there are gonna be people there that are praying. Because what happened to me, that's what I did when I was in college. When I came to Christ, I went to a weekly prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. Uh, and sometimes there were two people there. Sometimes there were 10 people there. But I just went. And the first, like, three or four times I went, I didn't say a word. Are you kidding? I'm not going to say a word in front of other people. You're crazy. And I just listened. And I heard and pray. My wife was one of those people that would pray. And they would pray, and I discovered, man, they're talking to God as if he's right here. Well, I came to learn, oh, he was. He was right there. They're talking to him like he's a friend and that he cares because I came to learn, yeah, he is a, a loving and gracious God. They're coming to him as if they didn't do anything wrong. And I came to learn that the blood of Jesus had covered my sin and I could come because when he looks on me, he looks at the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and I can come to him. And after the first two or three or four meetings, I started praying. And yes, there were times I was praying because I was trying to impress the people that were there. I mean, I thought Angie was cute. Come on. We weren't dating yet. But God worked that through in me, and then I began to pray. So don't be afraid to pray with others. Pray with others in your small group. So if you come, it's fine. If you come and the only people that pray are like a few people that have been going, and there's 30 other people, that's okay. It won't be long, and you'll all be praying and experiencing the Lord. So we need to pray together because we need to abide in Christ. Jesus said, if you abide in me, that's when you're going to bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. We learned that from John 15. We need to abide. That's the most essential thing that we can be doing. 
That's the very first thing that we want to see happen in a new disciple for Christ is we want them to abide. That's what we want to do as the goal of our small groups. When we get in fellowship with one another, we want to encourage one another so that we are abiding in Christ. Not so that we can check off the list that we're doing all the Christian things, but so that we are meeting the risen Christ personally. Because once you taste and see that he is good, you're going to want more. And as that marks your life, others on the outside are going to think that's weird. But you know that it's essential. You know that that's what they actually need because they are dying on the vine because they're not attached to Christ. And you will experience the life-giving seasons and times where you're experiencing Christ in prayer. Daniel was in his 90s. His strength was leaving him physically. But he knew the most powerful thing that he could do was to get into God's presence. So I want to encourage you to pray as Daniel prayed, but get the vision of what's happening. It's not, again, you're not checking off a list. Okay, I did that today. Daniel's like, I got to do this three times a day. And I'm not saying you must have a certain time, morning, midday, evening. Certainly you can do that. It's not about let's follow the Daniel pattern of prayer. You must do that because the, the New Testament tells us we should be praying at all times in the spirit, always making supplication for all the saints. So, you know, if you want to settle for just three times, the New Testament kind of calls you to a bit more than that because there's an awareness of Christ. But then then as we delight ourselves in Christ, it will produce the reality that unjust punishment will come. Look at verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king, conquering the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king realizes what he's done. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But he realizes if I, if I trump this thing that I said, they're never going to believe the next thing that I say, because if I make an edict of something else, they think, well, he's just going to change it. And he realizes his word's going to be moot. And he's put in a predicament that he doesn't want to be in. But ultimately, he would rather save face and let his friend go because he must have been a friend. He must have been someone he trusted. He was going to put him over the whole kingdom. And when he found out he was going to be going to the lion's den, he was distressed. So they had a relationship. 
And then in verse 15, then these men came by agreement. Again, the conspiracy continues to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that this is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. The king who has the power to say things and write things and sign them and they're made law. All he's got is just a prayer. Oh, I hope he saves you. Martin Luther wrote in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, let good and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his triumph, his truth to triumph through us. We are called to live for Christ when it costs us everything. And also when it seems like our living for Christ changes nothing. As we look into the uncertainty of the future, we must stand on the certainty of God and his word. One author said, what would it mean for North Americans now to join the ranks of those 19th century missionaries? So when they, when they went to the field, they, they didn't pack their bags. They packed their belongings in coffins before sailing to Africa because they expected to give their lives for God. What would it mean for us to lose all respect in the eyes of peers because we gave our careers for the lives of those abandoned to shame like Amy Carmichael who fought for the lives of children forced into temple prostitution in India during the Victorian era when her mission was scandalous to mention in churches. Philippians 3.8 says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't want to paint this picture of like, okay, well, we pray and then everything's just so happy. We pray because God is God and we must find satisfaction only in him. And we must know because Christ promised that persecution will come to us when we are devoted to him. The call from Christ isn't, hey, I need to leave this so that I can come and have a comfortable life. The call is to take up your cross and follow Christ. May we be a church that takes up our cross and follows Christ. So in the midst of uncertainty, as we drive forward, we are trusting in the unfailing, amazing God of the universe. In this story, Daniel was delivered by God. Though he was persecuted, he was sentenced to death. In fact, they tossed him in. That's what we have. Like, here's, we're on the edge of our seats. The king commanded and cast him into the den of lions. And then this is what happens to him. Look at verse 17. And the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. 
And the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. He, he told everybody to stay out and sleep and fled from him. So all night long, Daniel's thrown in. They put a stone over the mouth. Nobody can get in. Nobody can get out. And they wait. I don't know if you've ever had to wait an agonizing night in prayer because a loved one hasn't come home like they should or there's some uncertainty in your life and you're agonizing. He's agonizing. And the text tells us absolutely nothing. All the pictures portray what happened in there and we, we don't actually know all the particulars of what happened in there. But what we know is he was trusting God. In verse 20, so then verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den. He, in haste, he's running. Kind of makes me think of when John's running to the tomb to see Jesus. He's running in haste to the den of lions and he comes near to the den where Daniel was and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, oh, king, Live forever. Think about what would have been going through the mind of the king at that point. He's thinking he is gone. There's absolutely no way. I know what's happened every other time I've thrown someone in that place. Uh, he is done. And to hear his voice. And again, selflessly. He's not, I made it. See? No. Oh, king, live forever constantly encouraging. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. What a, what a time of rejoicing that would have been. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him, not even a scratch. I don't know if you've ever been to a zoo and seen a lion. Not really the place you want to go on the other side of the bars. Like it's fine on this side when they're way away from us, but not a scratch is found on him because he had trusted God and the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They and their children and their wives and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in earth, in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions... The book of Daniel is much about courage 
but it's also much about the God who is faithful, who delivers, because God can be trusted. This chapter is not about five easy steps to get out of your lion's den. That's not what it's about. Because for every Daniel that God delivers from the lion's den, we have and know about hundreds of nameless martyrs whom God did not deliver. The point is God can be trusted even in the lion's den. The book of Daniel is foreshadowing of what will happen on the last day. It's a picture of the final verdict that will come from the king of kings because there will be a verdict that will come from the king of kings. And those who are found wanting will end up going to a place of torment. When we read in verse 24 of what the king commanded to send those who weren't following God and cast them into the den of lions, that's a horrible and gruesome picture. But it was just because they were defying the God of the universe. And if you've not trusted in Christ, there's a place that you will go that's unspeakable. And it's not because we have a God who's malicious, but because we have a God who is just and he does what is right. And he calls you to respond because you don't have to go there. The good news is God's not sending everyone there maliciously. No, God provided a way of escape by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins so you can trust in him and you don't have to experience that. Because his kingdom is going to endure forever. It shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So the deliverance that we look to isn't a deliverance from the earthly trials that we experience. Though there are times he delivers us from those, but we are looking to the day when the ultimate deliverance will happen. We are looking to the one who will be the deliverer. We don't look to Daniel and go, I just need to be like Daniel. No, we see that Jesus is the better Daniel. We see that Jesus had more than impeccable character. Jesus was perfect. He, in fact, persevered in his life. Daniel's life is a picture of that persevering in righteousness. Jesus persevered with a purpose so that he would go to the cross and exchange his perfect life for your imperfect life. Jesus was opposed. Jesus was conspired against. The Sanhedrin conspired against him. Yet his response was to go to the garden and pray. Jesus had a pattern of prayer. Jesus was regularly in communion with the Father. Going to the garden was normal for him because he went away to pray all the time because he knew he needed to be with his Father. Jesus was subject to unjust punishment. He was falsely accused. He was brought before his enemies. He was brought before Pontius Pilate who even had a dream, whose who wife even had a dream that said, don't, don't, don't have anything to do with this man. Pilate ignores it. He has the power to stop it, and he washes his hands of it, and Jesus goes to the cross. 
And Jesus would be on the cross and he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm that includes these words, Psalm 22, that Jesus cries out on the cross also includes these words in Psalm 22, 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. But Jesus, Jesus was not delivered. Rather, Jesus was crushed for our deliverance. On the cross, there was no angel to comfort him. There was no presence of God as Jesus suffered the fate that we deserve. Jesus was left in blackness completely alone. Then Jesus was placed in a tomb and there was a stone rolled over that tomb. And he didn't wait just one night. He waited three days. But Jesus didn't remain in the grip of the tomb and God raised him from the dead and he came out on Easter Sunday. But our Jesus, he did not emerge without a scratch. He emerged with the scars on his hands and his feet that would prove to his disciples and to us that it was really him who went to the cross and that he really did do what he said when he said it was finished and completely paid for all of our sins and those scars remain. So though Daniel was unscathed, Jesus wasn't unscathed so that when you meet him in eternity, you will be unscathed. So this morning, we're going to transition to taking communion together. We want to be reminded of what Christ has done. Whoever believes in Christ will rise with Christ one day. Our salvation does not rest in our ability to be like Daniel. Our salvation rests solely on Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. So as you have the, the bread and the cup, as we go to take this, we take it being reminded of what Christ has done. We take it as individuals who still remain in exile. Because even as the last verse says, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Oh, no, that was and the last verse of this. It says, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel didn't go back to his home for the rest of his earthly life. And we don't go back to our home for this earthly life. But as we remember what Christ has done, we look to that day when we will go home and we can go home because of what Christ has done. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And it was going to be given for them on the cross. So he said, take and eat. 
So let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup because the cup was going to represent the blood that he was going to shed to wash all our sins away so that we could stand before God righteous, so it could be said of us that we are blameless and that's why we are delivered. We're blameless because of that blood. Let's drink the cup together. So whenever we eat the bread and whenever we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and respond. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.